Let's pray. Uh, Lord, as we open your word, uh, open our hearts to receive it, open our minds to understand its implications for us. Uh, Take us to the cross once again, as much as it's possible, to see our Lord suffering for our sins, to see our sins being put away from us as far as east is from west. Let us feel something more of the precious price that was paid, not that we might assign to ourselves great worth in your sight, but that we might see something of the depth and breadth of our eternal debt of love and devotion and service to him who died that we might live forever. We pray in his blessed name. Amen. Uh, Just this uh, past week, I finished reading a bestseller from the year of my birth, 1952. Uh, The book is titled Witness, written by a man named Whitaker Chambers. Uh, He was a writer and an editor for Time magazine from uh, 39 to 48, 1939 to 1948. But before that, he had been a communist and and a member of the American Communist Party from 1925 to 1932. In other words, give you an idea from in his life between the ages of 24 and 31. In in 1932, he quit his involvement in the uh, American Communist Party, but only so that he could become involved in the work of the communist underground. Uh, so he could do secret work, which promoted the advancement of uh, secret communists in the American government uh, for the purposes of espionage for the Soviet Union. And he was involved in that work, that, that uh, underground work, for six years, from 32 to 38. But in his late 30s, he's in his late 30s now, and he began to have doubts about the communist utopian dream. Uh, he was disturbed by partisan infighting among the communists, in the Communist Party, there are different factions, and uh, there was battle between who would win the day, and sometimes it was philosophy, and sometimes it was strategy, but there were factions. And he was, he was unnerved, particularly by the way that those on the losing end of those fights tended to, you know, disappear. They went away. Uh, or they died unexpectedly under suspicious circumstances, including some people he knew, some personal friends of his. Uh, On more than one occasion, he ignored orders from his communist overseers uh, to travel to Moscow, and he just didn't do it because he thought he he might not come back. Uh, On a a grander scale, he was privately appalled at Stalin's great purge, you know, thousands and millions back in in Russia. So he began squirreling away um, some evidence of espionage by himself and others, as a kind of insurance policy for when he would break from the party. He called it, he called it a, a life preserver. It's going to keep some evidence. And in 1938, he broke with communism. He took his family into hiding. And he took his story to the assistant secretary of state named 18 current or former employees of the government who were either spies or communist sympathizers, uh, most of which were low-level employees, but some weren't all that low. Some were like mid-level employees. The assistant secretary of state was unimpressed, but he did take the report to President Truman, who was also unimpressed, and nothing came of it. He also, uh, he also talked to the FBI, and they interviewed Chambers a couple of times, but nothing, came, nothing happened beyond that. Almost a decade later, uh, Chambers was called to testify before the famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, uh, House Committee on Un-American Activities, and he repeated a lot of his charges. 
And the lightning bolt at that time, when he, when he testified before the House committee, was naming a man named Alger Hiss as a member of the Communist Underground Network. Alger Hiss was definitely not a small fry. Uh, a very important official in the State Department whose fingerprints were on a lot of American foreign policy. Now, you can see, you've, seen a, you've seen a picture, I'm sure, of, a, of FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, and, and uh, um, Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin sitting together, the big three. He's in the background. He's right in the background of that shot, this uh, Alger, Alger Hiss. So, so that was the lightning bolt. He named this person that was pretty high up in the State Department. And so there's the setup. You can, you can sit, read for yourself if you want to know how it all turned out. But here's why I'm bringing it up. Here's why I just gave you that little bit of background. What I found particularly interesting as a Christian and as a pastor is how he saw his witness, that's the name of his book, how he saw his witness against communism as being on the central theater of the age-old war between good and evil, uh, between God and godlessness, between God and atheism between a Christian faith and atheism. Uh, he's no, he was no evangelical by our standards, uh, but as, as far as I can tell, I don't, you know, I don't know that he would be sign on to our doctrinal statement, but, he, but that's how he saw it. He wrote of communism, for example, I'll read this a little bit. He, he wrote of communism, it is not new. It is, in fact, man's second oldest faith. Its promise was whispered in the first days of the creation under the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Ye shall be as gods. It is the great alternative faith of mankind. Like all great faiths, its force derives from a simple vision. Other ages have had great visions. They have always been different versions of the same vision. The vision of God and man's relationship to God. The communist vision is the vision of man without God. It's the vision of man, man's mind displacing God as the creative intelligence of the world. It's the vision of man's liberated mind by the sole force of its rational intelligence redirecting man's destiny and reorganizing man's life and the world. It's the vision of man, once more the central figure of creation, not because man's mind makes him the most intelligent of the animals. Copernicus and his successors displaced man as the central fact of the universe by proving that the earth was not the central star of the universe. Communism restores man to his sovereignty by the simple method of denying God. Fascinating stuff. <laughs> And how he saw himself and spoke of himself as a witness. That's the title of his autobiography, Witness. It's important to realize that, that Chambers, he did not expect his witness to be successful. He, he did not expect to wind up on the winning side. Uh, the, the press was foursquare against him. He's vilified in the press daily during this, this time period, viciously. The government itself was divided and powerful political forces that were just absolutely bent on vindicating Hiss, this man of, 
upstanding character and man high up in the government and, and destroying chambers. For example, in Hiss's, uh, one of his trials, uh, testifying for Hiss were two Supreme Court justices. Two Supreme Court justices. So they've known him so long and they've never seen anything to indicate that he would be any disloyal to the government or anything like that. Also, a former um, nominee for President of the United States and a future nominee of President of the United States spoke on his behalf. The sitting president of the United States, Harry Truman, he, he publicly dismissed the whole thing. He called it a red herring. And a red herring is, is like it's a diversion that shouldn't be paid attention to. Whoever's trying to get you to pay attention to that is hiding something else. Don't pay attention. So he had no illusions. And I don't know if you see, you can actually see YouTubes of, you know, some of their testimony. But Chambers had no illusion that he, this kind of a, a chubby, disheveled looking man with a low voice, was, was going to win the day against this handsome and young and uh, verbally agile Alger Hiss. And in his testimony, in his witness, he did not think that he was destroying Hiss and other communists or the communist plans or, or conspiracy with his, with his testimony. He thought he, with his testimony, he was destroying himself at the time. But he thought, this is what God and history have brought me to. I've just been brought to this moment. I have to do it. He, he, he wrote about himself as a witness. And, and see if you can, as I read this little thing, see if you can draw the same parallel to Christian witnesses I do. He says in this time, when he's in, his, in the trials, or in his testimony before the House Committee, I had begun to understand that to be a witness in the sense in which I'm using the term means ultimately just one thing. It means that a man is prepared to destroy himself, if necessary, to make his witness. A man does not wish to destroy himself to the full degree in which he is the strongest, that is, today's to the full degree of force that makes it possible for him to bear witness at all. He desires not to destroy himself to the degree that he's most human, that is to say most weak. He shrinks from destroying himself. But to the degree that what he truly is and what he stands for are one, he must at some point tacitly consent in his own mind to destroy himself if that is necessary. And in part, that tacit consent is a simple necessity of the struggle. This is the point at which the witness is always most alone. He writes elsewhere, a witness, he kind of sums that up, Better, a, a witness is a man whose life and faith are so completely one that when the challenge comes to step out and testify for his faith, he does so, disregarding all risks and accepting all consequences. He's in the ante room waiting to go out to give his testimony. He he, he writes the you know the the, the every open testimony. The crowd, the gallery's full. Full of the press, full of people who are like uh, 
hating on him and, and, and uh, laughing with Alger Hiss when he made his jokes and things. And he's about to go out to give his testimony. He says, he writes, I realized in the dull way a man realizes that it is his turn to be shot next, that I must in a few moments give my testimony. I wondered how I could do it. I wondered how, with my low-pitched voice, I could even make myself heard. We are we're here tonight to give our attention to another man who was more than a mere man, but God himself in human flesh, who condemned himself by his own testimony, by his own witness, and he knew it would happen just like that, and he, but he did it because that was his calling, and he did it that others might live. You know, I re- read from Isaiah to start the service, and there it was. This verse was in there. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth, and for the most part, he did not open his mouth. <coughs> Matthew and Mark tell us about. Many false witnesses came forward. Many false witnesses testified against Jesus before Caiaphas, the high priest. But it said, but Jesus didn't answer any. He didn't answer any of the charges. He didn't have anything to say. Matthew's account at that point reads this way: Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But this is is what it says. This is what the scripture is. But Jesus remained silent. Later, when the Jewish religious leaders had brought Jesus before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, this is how Matthew describes it. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But, it says again, but he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. John tells us that Jesus even refused to answer the charges to to Pilate privately. John 19.9, he entered his headquarters, Pilate entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Luke tells us that Pilate tried to roll the case over to Herod. You know, he heard he was a Galilean. Oh, good. This is not my jurisdiction. I can get this over to a different governor and let him handle it. It didn't work. He rolled him right back. But... Luke says, so Herod, so Herod questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. Now, if Jesus had a defense attorney, we can imagine that he or she would have advised against letting all these charges go unanswered. If he had a defense attorney, they'd want some cross-examination here. If you were in the courtroom in the gallery and you were rooting for Jesus, you'd be kind of pleading with him inwardly and silently. Say something. Defend yourself. Prove them liars. That's a lie. Everybody knows it's a lie. 
But the biblical record also shows. So you have all those cases. Jesus was silent. Jesus was silent. Jesus was silent. He didn't say anything. He didn't answer any charges. So Isaiah looks in the, you know, so as like a lamb before its shears, he's silent. He does not open his mouth. That's absolutely true, isn't it? But the biblical record shows that Jesus' silence was not absolute. It wasn't total. He did speak a few times. He did offer testimony, but he offered, his testimony was strategic. And the testimony that he gave, while true, led only to his condemnation as he knew it would. Matthew tells us that Caiaphas put the question to him directly. He said, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said so. But I tell you, and Jesus ups the ante, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest, and he's counting on Caiaphas' knowledge of the scripture here. He's, he's, he's referring to Daniel chapter 7, where the Messiah comes in clouds of glory to judge the living and the dead. So he's saying, in effect, Jesus is saying, counting on his knowledge of the scriptures, he's saying, you're judging me now, but I'm going to be the judge of all mankind. Tell us if you are... The Christ, yes, I am. And you'll know it. Then the high priest, Matthew continues, tore his robes and says he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? Now you've, you've heard his blasphemy. What's your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And of course it would be blasphemous for someone to make these claims about himself if it were not true. But the effect of Jesus, he's quiet, he doesn't say anything, he lets it go, he lets it pass. But the effect of his testimony when he did say something was to condemn himself by giving them the grounds for their capital offense. They brought up all kinds of false witnesses, none of it stuck. He didn't say anything. And it's like Jesus saying, you want your capital offense, you want your blasphemy charge, here you go. I'll witness to a truth that I know you will interpret as blasphemy, a charge punishable by death. Now, the, the problem, of course, for the Jewish authorities is that under the Roman occupation, they had no legal right under Rome's rules to execute those they found guilty of a capital offense. The power of life and death was reserved to Rome. Back in the good old days, they would have stoned Jesus right then and there and been done with it. But now, if they're going to get Jesus executed, which is a goal for them all along, they had to get the Roman governor involved. But the problem is, Pilate would be entirely uninterested in a charge of blasphemy. What does he care? What does Rome care about these Jewish intricacies and what's blasphemy and what's not and who's breaking the rules and who's not. That's, that's, what do they care about, these Jewish standards like that? So that's why they're very coy. They're very coy when they, 
when they first bring Jesus before Pilate. John's Gospel, this is from John, John 18. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. They're not going to go to a Gentile's house. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him up to you. How's that for a charge? <laughs> What's the charge? Hey, he's guilty. We, that's why we brought him. Pilate won't take the bait. Here's the next verse. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. By Roman law they're talking about. So it says, You see, governor, we have a problem. We want to execute him, but the way things are, we kind of need you to do it. And they know the blasphemy charge will not will not fit the will no longer do. So they change the charge. Here's Luke twenty three two. They began to accuse him, saying we found this man misleading our nation, which seems kind of coy to me. Whose nation? You know, misleading Rome, misleading Israel, what? But they, anyway, but that's how they soften. Maybe they're referring to the blasphemy charge. Yeah, we've got some problems with them Jewish-wise, Old Testament-wise. But we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Well, that's some things that Rome might be interested in. <laughs> He's forbidding people to pay taxes to Rome, which of course is not true, is it? But it's a very, it's an un, it's a very hostile kind of twisting of, of what Jesus had said. Render to God the things that are God, the Caesar, the things that are Caesar's. It's not a very kind spin on it, but that's what they say. He forbids paying taxes to Caesar. And, more importantly, he claims to be our king. What does Rome smell there? Rebellion. Treason. Now that's a charge Rome can get interested in. And that, that could even get Caesar's attention if he heard about it. And Pontius Pilate better handle this. So Pilate asked Jesus a straight-out question. Luke 23.3 is one I've chosen. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You know what we don't read next? Jesus didn't say anything. He, that's not what we read next. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Here's the rest of the verse. And he answered him, you have said so, like you said it yourself. In other words, yes. John in his gospel gives us more detail about what passed between Jesus and Pilate there. Here's part of it, just a part of it. Then Pilate said to him, so are, you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm the king? 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Isn't that interesting? To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now there's a witness in the way that Whitaker Chambers was using the term. One whose mission and identity are so fused that when it comes time for him to testify, he does so disregarding all the risks, embracing all the consequences. Even to his own destruction. So before the Jews... Jesus' testimony, although he didn't have much to say at all, but when he did speak, he gave them the charge of blasphemy, which they knew he knew they would call for the death sentence, as they could do on that charge by the law of Moses. And before Pilate, when he did speak, Jesus gave Pilate the charge of treason or rebellion that he needed. He was guilty of neither, of course, but he's found guilty of both. And in both phases of his trial, the, the Jewish phase and the Roman phase, who was the key witness that led directly to Jesus' condemnation and execution? Was it any of those false witnesses they dragged up and they, all those people... None of that stuck. It was Jesus' testimony. It was Jesus' witness. His, his own testimony put him on the cross. The only times he spoke at his own trial, his words were intended to take him to the cross. He didn't intend for his testimony to help him escape the cross. He angled toward the cross. He gave them what they needed to crucify me. He told the truth, and they took it as blasphemy and treason. He bore witness. And in so doing, he destroyed himself for the sake of truth and for the sake of all those who would listen to the truth that comes from him. And, you know, I don't know that I'd... I don't know that before this last week or so, I don't know that I've ever seen that before. I, I think I may have read the Passion accounts before with kind of a vague idea that once he was arrested, you know, that things took their course. It, just, it was just the train had left the station. It was just barreling down, and it was going to end up at the cross. And I, I kind of looked at it like all the maneuverings, all the machinations were on the part of his enemies, you know, on the part of the, the Jewish religious leaders, changing the charge and figure, you know, telling the people to call for Barabbas instead of Jesus to be released and all that. All the, all the shenanigans, you know, all the maneuverings were on their part. But now I see that even during his trials, Jesus' face was set for Jerusalem. Even during his trials, his, his, his face was set toward the cross and he saw to it that he wound up there. Even then, he's focused on what the cross, not just the cross for the cross's sake, but your salvation and mine. And it fills me with Humility. 
and awe-filled thankfulness and worship and devotion. And I hope it does the same for you to see this, that even in the midst of the trial, he's seeing to it that he goes to the cross. And now having borne witness himself, and this, that's how Jesus called it, I can, I'm bearing witness. He calls on us to bear witness, doesn't he? To walk in his footsteps, even if it means, as Paul says later, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions to stand for the truth, to stand with Him when there are no friendlies to be found, when the whole world and the arc of history seems bent against you, to be so at one with your faith in Christ to be so at one, of one peace with your faith in Christ, that when it is your time to testimony, to give testimony, your time to testify, you do it, disregarding the risks, accepting the consequences. Uh, Father and Lord Jesus. Uh, how you loved us. <laughs> what a gauntlet you went through to purchase us and the likes of us for your own possession. And how thankful we are that you did. How humbled we are that you did. Uh, may the lives that we live after coming to that realization of how focused the Lord Jesus was on obtaining for us this faith and this grace in which we stand. After coming to that realization, may our witness for you be of the same kind as your witness for us. We pray in the powerful and precious name of Jesus. Amen.